It's because I'm muted. Here we go. You also may be wondering about seven minutes into the message, when is he going to read the scripture passage? We'll get there, I promise, but it'll just take a little longer than usual. Don't worry, the sermon won't be any longer, all right? It just, it just seems important to spend a good chunk of time on, on why we're doing this series. What, what's the big idea behind the sermon series we're beginning today? So we'll do that, and then we'll, then we'll get to our text. Is that all right? Sure. Okay, I know. You don't really have, I guess you could leave, but that's, I guess you could start throwing things at me, I don't know. So we begin by thinking about the word charisma. Charisma. Some have it, and some don't. At least that's how we understand the English word charisma. We say someone has charisma if they have an attractive personality, and it helps if they have an equally attractive appearance. A person with charisma blends together passion, persuasiveness, and charm. Because of this, we want, we, we like them, and we want to follow them. Good leaders, we suppose, have charisma. And the rest of us, ordinary folks, well, we just don't. Merriam-Webster defines charisma as compelling attractiveness or charm that can inspire devotion in others. Winston Churchill, MLK Jr., Madonna, all possessed charisma in their own way. Ask any leader, and that's what they want, charisma. It means influence and power and success. That's why there's an article in Forbes magazine entitled, Seven Character Traits of Charismatic People. If you don't know, Forbes magazine is popular reading for people who like wearing suits. It's a magazine for business persons and entrepreneurs who crave influence and power and success in the business place. These readers desire charisma, and Forbes knows it, and so the article describes seven ways to improve your charisma— Listen actively, speak clearly, stand straight, and so on. And this desire for charisma has taken a digital form in our own day, hasn't it? So that we can talk about digital charisma that we try to create for ourselves through social media platforms. Of course, history holds out to us an ominous warning about charisma. While charisma creates a crowd, it also has the power to blind us to what is true and good and just. There is a dark side to charisma. Influence, power, and success can be channeled in all the wrong ways, and often they are. Some of the most charismatic people in history include names like these, Bin Laden, Fidel Castro, and of course, Adolf Hitler. Listen to a speech from Hitler and you realize just how much charisma the man possessed. That's when you discover the answer to the question, how could something as atrocious as the Holocaust happen in the backyard of civilized Germans? That's the power of charisma. So today we begin a six-week series entitled Charisma, Spiritual Gifts of Grace. But our understanding of charisma as Christians and for this series is drastically different from the one I just described. You see, charisma is an ancient Greek word. It's found in the New Testament 17 times. Now listen to how the word sounds in the ancient Greek language. You ready? 
Charisma. It's exactly the same. <laughs> Charisma sounds exactly the same in the New Testament, in the Greek, as it does in modern English. However, the meaning could hardly be any more different. Charisma in the New Testament is a gift of divine grace. A gift of divine grace. New Testament charisma still comes with power, but it's a very different sort of power. New Testament charisma still influences, but it does so not through the individual, but through the community. New Testament charisma still brings success, but the very definition of success has been transfigured. The biggest difference, though, is purpose. The purpose of New Testament charisma has nothing to do with the purpose of the world's charisma, charming one's way to the top, creating a cult of personality for the sake of self-advancement. No. Instead, the purpose of New Testament charisma is to humbly offer the world an alternative and attractive way of life as the community of Jesus. So this brings us to a fuller definition of charisma. You may want to write this down. You notice I have a bottle with a cap on it this morning. For those who weren't here, I accidentally knocked it over in excitement last week. So, yeah, okay, I got it. Here's the fuller definition of charisma. Charisma is a gift of divine grace for the upbuilding of the community of Jesus designed to woo the world back to the God who is love. I'll say it one more time. Charisma is a gift of divine grace for the upbuilding of the community of Jesus designed to woo the world back to the God who is love. That's what we'll be fleshing out in the coming weeks. But now you already have a good deal of knowledge about the word charisma, about this part of the title in our sermon series. We're not talking about charisma as the world sees it. We're talking about charisma as God sees it. So what about the second part of the title, spiritual gifts of grace? What is that all about? You heard Tim talk a little bit about it in the announcement. Uh, it'll help us understand the second part by breaking down the word charisma. This won't be too hard. I know you didn't come here for an English lesson. But at the root of the word charisma is the word charis. Do you hear that? Repeat after me. Charis. Charis. Do you know this word? We have uh, friends who named their daughter charis. That's because charis is the marvelous Greek word for the reality we call grace. Grace. When Paul says it is by grace that you have been saved, the word is charis. It is by charis that you have been saved, not by works so that no one can boast. The word charis then gets extended into the word charisma. Are you tracking? So charis means grace, and charisma is an expression of God's grace, a practical gift of grace, part of the grace that we can feel, that we can touch. So these two biblical words, they teach us about God's generosity, these two words teach us that God's generosity is twofold. First, God saves us by charis, unearned favor. Second, God empowers us with charisma. This, this second aspect of 
God's generosity, it gives us this picture. It gives us a picture of God presenting presents. God with a red sack full of gifts. And it doesn't matter whether we've been naughty or nice. These gifts are unearned, just like the salvation we have received in Christ. They are gifts of grace. They are given not because we are deserving, but because, friends, it's in the very nature of God to be generous toward us. God is a giver. They are gifts of grace. And it's the Spirit of God who distributes them. That's why we can call them spiritual gifts of grace. And there you have it. That's the title of our sermon series and the topic of conversation over the next six weeks. Charisma, spiritual gifts of grace. Now this matters for you because God says that all who have received the Spirit have also received a spiritual gift of grace, a charisma. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, each person has their own charisma from God. And it may be different than you think, or much greater than you ever thought, and it may be able to to be applied in new ways as, as we go through different stages of life. But nonetheless, each person has their own charisma from God. So you may want to try this letter today. When you get home, find a mirror Make sure you close the door behind you and look yourself in the mirror and say, I have charisma. Yeah? You may want to do it with a a wink and a nod and then say it again. I have charisma. Think of, you know, Braveheart, Mel Gibson. You know, do it with that sort of attitude, all right? Can we say that together? I have charisma. Some of you aren't so sure. When you say this, you are not claiming to have exceptional charm. You are not claiming to have a special ability to persuade others. You're not claiming to have earned anything. Instead, you are accepting a gift to you by a generous God. You are accepting a gift to be used in the community of Jesus with the end goal of wooing the world back to the God who is loved. You have charisma. Okay, we're almost ready to read our scripture text for today, but there's one thing we must discuss. We must address an obstacle which must be overcome in order to benefit from this series. The obstacle is the doubt that God truly is generous. We're going to talk a lot in this series about how we've benefited from God's generosity and what that, what that means for our lives, but I may be assuming too much. I'm assuming everyone in the room already believes God to be generous. Maybe that's a wrong assumption. Perhaps for some of us, there is a repressed doubt that God really is generous. This doubt may be deep down behind layers of self-protection we've built for our soul, but it's there. And it must be acknowledged before going any further. So I ask you, do you know God to be generous? It's an extremely significant question. Those of you who went through the most recent discipleship series on generosity, you learned the importance of this question. Do you personally know God to be generous? Or or does God still come across to you as stingy? 
if that's your view, maybe you've never admitted it before, but if that's your view deep down that God is stingy, then that will be the first hurdle you must jump over to get anything out of this series. Maybe your earthly father was stingy. Maybe your basic experience of the people around you is that they are hoarders of stuff. Maybe you encounter daily people who clutch their fists tightly. And so without trying, the idea has creeped into your soul that God is the same, that God is stingy. But in order to understand anything we are trying to accomplish in this series, we first must arrive at the place where we can honestly say without reserve, God is incredibly generous. Not God is holding out on me so I don't have much to offer, but instead, God is incredibly generous. Take it one step further. God is incredibly generous toward me. Can you say that? God is incredibly generous toward me. I was actually uh, speaking rhetorically, but uh, thanks. (laughs) I hope you can say that. That's my prayer for you throughout this series, that God would reveal his generosity toward you. Now, if this happens, then your life is about to get a whole lot more interesting and satisfying and joyful. If this happens, then you'll discover that you have far more to offer than you ever dreamed, irregardless of your age, your personality, your health, your station in life. So that's my prayer for all of us, really, that, that in thinking about our gifts, we'd be overwhelmed by the goodness and generosity of the grace of God toward us. With that in mind, let us pray and then read our scripture for today. Lord, you are generous and you are good. You distribute your charis and charisma, your grace and your gifts to us. But for our part, we are undeserving and we have doubts. So by the power of your spirit, open our narrow minds, soften our hard hearts, and bend our stubborn wills to think rightly about you and your incomparable generosity. We pray this in the name of the one who put flesh onto the concept of grace, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Ephesians 4 from the Common English Bible. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I encourage you to live as people worthy of the call you receive from God. Conduct yourself with all humility, gentleness, and patience. Accept each other with love. And make an effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit with the peace that ties you together. You are one body and one Spirit, just as God also called you in one hope. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. God has given his grace to each one of us, measured out by the gift that is given by Christ. That's why scripture says, when he climbed up to the heights, he captured prisoners, and he gave gifts to the people. 
What does the phrase, he climbed up, mean? If it doesn't mean that he had first gone down into the lower regions, the earth. The one who went down is the same one who climbed up above all the heavens so that he might fill everything. He gave some apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. His purpose was to equip God's people for the work of serving and building up the body of Christ until we all reach the unity of faith and knowledge of God's Son. God's goal for us in this is to become mature adults, to be fully grown, measured by the standard of the the fullness of Christ. As a result, we aren't supposed to be infants any longer who can be tossed and blown around by every wind that comes from teaching with deceitful scheming and the tricks people play to deliberately mislead others. Instead, by speaking the truth with love, let's grow in every way into Christ, who is the head. The whole body grows from him as it is joined and held together by all the supporting ligaments. The body makes itself grow in that it builds itself up with love as each one does its part. This is the word of the Lord. Do you see how the charisma of God, the charisma of God, is different from the charisma of the world? The charisma of the world is about the individual, the personality, the schmoozer who seeks self-advancement. He schemes and tricks and plays on people's emotions. The world's view of charisma is about the individual, filled with selfish ambition, using attraction and charm to get one's way but not so with the charisma of God. God's charisma is about the community, which Paul calls the body of Christ. It's about the people called by God to accept one another with love. It's not about self-advancement, but God's advancement. A body working together, ligament by ligament, taking its directions from the head, which is Christ. It's about growing up, becoming mature, becoming like Christ. God's view of charisma is about the community maintaining unity and growing up as each member does his or her part, serving and building up one another. Do you see the difference between these? Which one do you like better? Which vision of charisma would you rather be a part of? Which one would you rather orient your life around? Ephesians 4 is one of the four places in the New Testament that talks about spiritual gifts. It's found in a letter from Paul to an ancient city called Ephesus, a church in the city. Now, like many of Paul's letters, he's writing with an aim, the the aim of addressing some problem that has arisen in the church. Now, the problem in Ephesus was a lack of unity. There were in-groups and out-groups among the Christians in Ephesus. Certain people who were in your group, and then certain people who were not. And those not in one, one's particular group, well, it was just easier to avoid them, maybe with a hint of resentment. As is often the case, the difference between the groups in Ephesus were the result of some social factor. Jewish Christians stuck together and did their own thing, and Gentile Christians buddied up with one another, and did their own thing. 
I can imagine this resulted in a scenario where every, every Sunday after church, the Jewish Christians would sit down around the same circled tables with the same people week after week. They would drink their coffee together with people like them, people from their group, and they'd have the same conversations as usual. It was comfortable, and they liked it that way. It was human nature. Meanwhile, the Gentile Christians followed suit. They would keep to themselves, huddled in some part of the gathering area after church, the same part every week. And when they, and when they joined ministry teams and small groups, they made sure it was with people like them. Occasionally, the two groups would exchange pleasantries. Hi there, good morning, how are you? On your cell phones again, I see. And no one really saw this as a problem. After all, it had been going on for this for quite some time. But as an outsider, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul was able to see this for what it was. It was a problem. The problem was disunity. The solution Paul comes up with is twofold. First, he names the truth that there is one Lord. And second, he reasons from this truth that they must use their spiritual gifts to preserve their oneness in the Lord. So here's Paul's logic. Actually, here's the logic of God, of which Paul becomes aware. God is one, Paul says, who is over all, through all, and in all. Therefore, you are to be one. How do you achieve that oneness? By putting into practice your spiritual gifts. By serving one another with whatever charisma God has given you. It's as if he was saying, you see, the diversity among you is not part of the problem, but it's actually part of the gift. And, and it's a key part of the solution. For the solution to come to pass, the solution is unity. For the solution to come to pass, every member of the body must get involved. So Paul reminds them, you have all received from God a gift. Remember, you have charisma. You can look yourself in the mirror later today and honestly say, I have charisma. And the reason you have it isn't for self-congratulations, but for serving your neighbor, especially your church neighbor. So if you're a Gentile Christian, use your gift to serve your Jewish Christian neighbor. If you're in your 70s or 80s, use it to serve a teenager. If you're a young adult, use it to serve a shut-in. If you're a recent retiree, use it to serve a busy young parent. If you're a long-term member, use your God-given gift, your charisma, to serve a new member. That's why you have it. That's why God gave it to you. God has given his grace to each one of us. And this gift is not just for you and your generation or your group, but it's intended to bring unity to the whole body of Christ. How can we achieve unity when we don't put our gifts to use by serving others who are not in our group with love? Do you see the implications of what Paul is saying for us, for you, for me? Now, the key point in all of this concerning our charisma is this. We have each received spiritual gifts of grace in order to build up the whole body of Christ. That's one of the primary reasons we have gifts. 
for the upbuilding of the whole community of Jesus, for our unity, for our peace, for our ability to offer the non-Christian community around us an alternative and attractive way of life as the community of Jesus. A life in which diversity is not part of the problem, but actually part of the gift and a means toward the solution. Friends, that's what the world needs to see in the church. The world doesn't need to see another organization divvied out by social factors. There's a lot of those. What the world needs to see is an intergenerational church working together, loving one another, invested in each other's lives, praying for one another, using their gifts to build up the body of Christ. That's what the world needs to see. Reformer John Calvin talks about this a good deal in his 16th century commentary on Ephesians. Calvin emphasizes that God has not made us self-sufficient, any of us. None of us are self-sufficient. This is for good reason. God has set it up this way, in Calvin's view, so that we would be required to seek out our sister and brother for help. God set it up so that we would sense our humble need for the gift of another. We need to lean on one another. That's what God wanted. God set it up this way so that we would learn to depend on one another for what we cannot accomplish alone. And by God's grace, we are actually able, each in our own way, to give to our sisters and brothers the very gifts of God. Listen to Calvin's own words. The meaning of this verse may be thus summed up. On no one has God bestowed all things. Each has received a certain measure. Being thus dependent on each other, they find it necessary to throw their individual gifts into the common stock and thus to render mutual aid. So you see, God's idea of spiritual gifts should not be seen as a burden. This is really important. God's idea is not for these to feel like a burden. Oh, you're telling me to do something else. Oh, it's going to make me uncomfortable, and it sounds like it's going to take energy, but I'm so tired. Friends, that's not the attitude. Here's why. The gifts we are to pass along to others are ones that God himself has given to us. And God has done this in his infinite wisdom. God knows how old you are or how young you are. God knows the state of your health. God knows your station in life. God knows what season you're in. You're coming and you're going. God knows you're waking and you're sleeping. God knows it all. God knows you personally. So when God gives you a gift to share, he knows what he's doing. And he's doing it out of generous love. God's aim isn't to place a heavy burden on us that we're unable to carry. Certainly not. Rather, God wants each of us to have something to offer. God wants us to know that we matter, that we still matter, that there is purpose for your life, even still, that you make a difference. God wants you to know that, that you fit into the body of Christ as one of its parts, that you play an integral role in the body this means that you are indispensable. So if we are to grow up as a community, to, to be the sort of attraction the world needs, 
We need you and your gifts. God has set it up this way so that each of us always has something to offer, no matter what stage of life we're in. That's why he so generously pours out gifts onto each of us. And by the grace of God, the gifts we receive are actually something that will bring us joy and delight and fulfillment. Some of you know what I mean, what it's like to use the gifts God has given you for the the well-being of others. Now, I'm not saying this won't cost you something to share these gifts. It will. It might, in fact, cost quite a bit. I'm not saying it won't require some amount of intention or effort. It will. But so do most things worth doing, right? An athlete doesn't enjoy a trophy without the cost and effort of practice. A mother doesn't enjoy the birth of a child without a whole lot of cost and effort. Neither can we enjoy a life of purpose and fulfillment without cost and effort. But God knows who you are, and he knows what season you're in. And the Spirit doesn't give you a gift without also supplying exactly what you need to use it. Maybe we need to remember Philippians 4. And my God, Paul says, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. So think of it this way. The Spirit buys you a present and gives it to you. It's a power tool, but it requires a certain kind of battery. What do you think? Will the Spirit Spirit supply you with the batteries or not? Of course. (laughs) He'll give you the gift and he'll give you the energy source, the, what's necessary to use it. If you then, though you are evil, Jesus says, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So friends, you have charisma, each one of you. Your Father in heaven is pretty darn good at finding the perfect gift for his children, and he's generous So receive then with gratitude this gift. Receive the good news that you have charisma, the charisma of God. And so does your brother and sister in Christ. And they're different from each other, and you need each other. So let us lean in on each other for that which we lack but so desperately need. Let us open ourselves up to these gifts. Share them with one another, all for the glory of God, that we might excel in unity for the glory of God, who longs to woo the world back into his saving embrace. Let us pray. Lord, our words, our thoughts, our ideas mean nothing. If you do not Open our hearts, our eyes, to your love, your generosity. So we pray that you would open our hands, you would unclench our fists to receive the gifts you've given us, to receive the very spirit of life that calls us to a life of joy, of satisfaction, of purpose, of meaning to the fullness of life that Christ offers abundantly to us, your children. We pray all this in Jesus' name.